talking about Jesus, it says in verse 1, And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some of them said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man Jesus, called Jesus, made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. And now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask of him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, He's of age, ask him. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to also become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began 
has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Well, today we have the privilege of having Matt Quintana preach to us. Matt is a student at Multnomah University. He's been there for, he's going into his third year. And uh, so he and I have been meeting for the last several months and just trying to get him up and running in terms of pastoral ministry. He wants to be a pastor when he grows up. So um, we're going to give him the chance to preach. So Matt, come on up, preach God's word to us. Thank you, Gary. Good morning. It's a privilege and a pleasure to be with you, to bring God's word to you. Um, I know we just prayed, but I need God's help, so let's pray again. Father of grace and mercy, thank you for your word and your revelation of yourself through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Father, I admit I need your help this morning, so would you, by your spirit, speak through me? Would my words be your words, and would I preach what is truly the meaning of this text? Lord, we, we ask you to prepare our hearts for receiving your word, for receiving the truth. Would these glorious truths, these heavenly realities revealed in this text in John 9, penetrate our hearts and result in worship? Spirit, we ask that you would apply this truth to our hearts, that you would continue to make us more and more like Christ. We ask this in the name of the Son. Amen. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be completely blind? Imagine with me, if you will, that suddenly you're unable to see. Consider how drastically different your life would become. On a practical level, you wouldn't be able to drive yourself anywhere. Getting around would be a hassle, would be dangerous and difficult. Think about your favorite activities or hobbies that you, that you do. You wouldn't be able to, to continue. Maybe it's sports or, or watching TV or movies. Wouldn't be able to read or write. No video games, no going to the gym, no swimming at the beach. You wouldn't be able to use a cell phone. And I'd guess that for most everyone in this room, you wouldn't be able to continue at your current job. The list could go on and on. Imagine now being blind from birth. Think about all the things that you would have no concept of. You would, wouldn't understand how beautiful sunsets are, or the smile of your spouse, or the joy of watching your children play at the park. You'd have no category for a magnificent work of art, 
the glory and wonder of the mountains or the beauty of the Pacific Northwest. You would understand the appeal of staying up late to view the stars or what fresh snow upon the ground looks like on Christmas morning. In many ways, being blind would restrict and would limit some of the ways you would experience life. And I'm not saying that those who are blind are in some way inferior or they automatically live lives that are lesser. But I say this to make a point. Being blind would lead to many hardships and inconveniences, would result in missing out on a lot of the beauties and benefits of having sight, and would prohibit one from experiencing fully some of the greatest pleasures that we enjoy in life. According to the Bible, we are all blind. Not physically, but spiritually. From our birth, we have been entrenched in sin and rebellion against the one good, holy creator God. Our eyes have been closed to the things of God, and we are utterly unable to see him and thus respond rightly to him. Being spiritually blind means that we are completely unable to recognize Jesus as the Son of Man, the Messiah, the one and only Savior, and we are utterly incapable of rendering to him the worship that he deserves and demands. In our blindness, we live in a perpetual state of unbelief. If you've been with us as we've been going through this series in the gospel according to John, hopefully a lot of this sounds familiar. As we've gone through chapter 8 the past few weeks, we've heard several of the judgments that Jesus himself has made about all mankind. He declared that everyone is a slave to sin, that apart from belief, you will die in your sins. In fact, he goes on to state that unless you believe in him as the one sent from God, you are a child of the devil. These words seem harsh and blunt, but they're true. We finish this chapter wondering if this is the natural state of all mankind, what hope does any one of us have? As we pick up today in chapter 9, we find a man who has been physically blind since his birth, but soon he's miraculously and powerfully healed by Jesus. As we work through the chapter, we find that not only does this man gain physical sight, but he gains spiritual sight as well. After starting in complete darkness, both figuratively and literally, the story ends with him in the light, on his knees, in worship before the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. As the light of the world, Jesus is able to shine light into the darkest of places and open the eyes of all those who are spiritually blind. This is wonderful, wonderful news. However, this light also brings judgment as it is only those who acknowledge their blindness who may be given sight. Those who merely think they can see actually become more blind. This is the main point of our passage today, and thus our, our truth statement, or our shared truth, is this. As the light of the world, Jesus gives sight to those who believe and blinds those who remain in unbelief. I'll say it again. As the light of the world, Jesus gives sight to those who believe and blinds those who remain in unbelief. The narrative is broken into three major sections, the first one being verses 1 through 7. Here we find Jesus and his initial encounter with the man born blind, and then there's a conversation that takes place between the disciples and their teacher. The story seems to flow smoothly out of chapter 8. If you've been with us, you will recognize this, and, and though likely some time has passed, 
it will become very obvious through the rest of this chapter that what takes place now is connected to what has come before uh, in the Feast of Booze in the previous two chapters. Verse 1 introduces a main character, the man born blind. As we progress through the story, you may begin to, to think that some of this sounds familiar if you've been with us through this entire series, and you'd be right. In fact, there's a lot of parallels between chapter 9 of John and chapter 5. In both chapters, Jesus encounters a man who is physically disabled from, um, not necessarily from birth, but for a long period of time. In both chapters, they've been uh, affected by this disability and then are miraculously healed on a Sabbath day. Afterwards, the Jews interrogate the subject of the healing, and then finally, in both cases, Jesus tracks down the person who was healed and calls them to respond. The main difference between these two stories, though, is in the response of the man who was healed. And so we will see that, that clearly the author John has intended these two stories to be put next to each other. And we will also see that the response of the man born blind who is healed is, is the correct response. So here we are, beginning the story. Jesus and the disciples encounter this man who has been blind from birth. Before the healing takes place, the disciples... They ask their teacher, um, whose sin caused this blindness? Here they reveal their theological assumption that all suffering is a result of an individual sin. And while this is sometimes the case, as Jesus himself has implied earlier in John 5, it's not always. Job in the Old Testament is a, is a prime example of this. In this particular scenario, Jesus rules out that the man's blindness was a result of his sin or his parents' sin. Instead, he emphasizes the fact that his blindness was in the control of God. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It was God's sovereign plan that Christ might be glorified and his grace revealed in this apparently hopeless case. This becomes quite evident by the end of the story when it's crystal clear that the works of God have been displayed through this man who was healed. In verse 5, Jesus repeats the important statement he made back in 8.12, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. This is one indicator that what is taking place in this chapter is thematically connected to the previous stories. Now, the sentence is not insinuating in any way that Jesus, at some point, stops being the light. Rather, it's stating that as the light, when he is, when he is on the earth, Jesus is continually exposing and revealing and judging the darkness while also providing life in the light. By repeating these words from chapter 8, Jesus emphasizes his role as the life-giving light sent from the Father who exposes sin and unbelief that leads to death. The last time Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he added, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life, back in 8.12. With the reiteration of this declaration here in chapter 9, instead of repeating the same promises before, a story is told in which these promises literally come true. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back healing. Verses 6 and 7. This picture of Jesus bending to the ground and creating something out of the dirt should remind us of something. 
just as in Genesis 2 where Yahweh created by his word and formed man out of the dirt and breathed life into him. Here, Jesus, the incarnate word, performs an act of creation and by his mouth makes mud out of the dirt. Even the name of the pool in which the man is commanded to go, Siloam, which means sent, reminds us of Jesus' identity as the one sent from the Father. In response, the man obediently goes to the pool, he washes, and he receives his sight. The miracle is performed. After verse 7, we launch into the second section of this story, which contains the bulk of the narrative. Verses 8 through 34 contain four different verbal exchanges, four conversations, all of which are discussions and interrogations revolving around the events that just happened, the miracle that was just performed. In the first conversation, verses 8 to 12, the man who was born blind is confronted by his neighbors, those who had, had seen him, who were familiar with him. There's some division over his identity, with many finding it impossible to believe that this man, whom likely they had seen begging on the street corner for years, is the same one who they now see with, with his eyes opened. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Verses 10 and 11. The man repeats his story to the curious neighbors, and when it comes to the identity of the miracle worker, he says that it was, quote, the man called Jesus. Up until their encounter, the formerly blind man may have never heard of Jesus, and certainly he hadn't seen him. At this point, he was just a man to him. Pay attention, though, for as we move on, we will see that his understanding of who Jesus is continues to grow and progress as the story goes on. Soon the next conversation begins, and in verses 13 through 17, we read of the Pharisees questioning this man about what has happened to him. So far in the book of John, we have seen the Pharisees to be a group of rigid, hypocritical religious leaders set on opposing Jesus. In verse 14, the narrator tells us, Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. According to the tradition of the Jews, what Jesus had done constituted work, and thus he was guilty of breaking the law. After the formerly blind man recounts his story again in verse 15, there's division amongst the Pharisees. Many of them are, are still dogmatically asserting that this man, Jesus, can't possibly be from God. He broke the Sabbath. He's a sinner. Still, others retort that a sinner would be unable to perform such signs. Surprisingly, they turn to the man who was healed, and they, they ask him, well, what do you think? With seemingly no hesitation, he replies in verse 17, he is a prophet. The uneducated, formerly blind man is closer to the truth than the Pharisees. Now, certainly, he has a lot to learn about who Jesus is, and as the readers, we already know that Jesus is much more than a prophet. He's the one sent from God to give light to the world, but notice, again, the, the progression of the man's understanding. No longer is Jesus just a man to him. He is a prophet. Unsatisfied with the response of the man born blind, the Pharisees, they, they seek out his parents. They want to know, well, what, was he actually blind from birth? So this th third conversation, verses 18 to 23, we, we find the Pharisees determined to prove that Jesus did not come from God. So they, they set out to discredit the miracle itself. 
According to the Pharisees, Jesus was a sinner. Sinners can't perform these signs, and so therefore the miracle did not happen. They asked the parents a series of loaded questions, and in response, the, the, the Pharisees learn really nothing that they didn't already know. Twice the narrator tells us that the parents respond, our son is old enough, just go ask him. We are informed, though, that for the fear of the Jews and being kicked out of the synagogue, the formerly blind man's parents kept their mouths shut. Well, this conversation doesn't reveal much about the identity of Christ or whether or not this miracle was a hoax. It does tell us something about the character of the Pharisees. Rather than examining the evidence with an open mind, they come to the scene with their conclusions already intact. Scholar Leon Morris puts it this way, They do not examine the evidence with open minds, but in light of their firmly held prejudices, seek to discover the flaw that they feel must surely be present. This is only confirmed in the next verse where we read, So for the second time they called the man who was born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. This begins the final conversation of this section, verses 24 to 34, which are by far the most revealing. The Pharisees find the formerly blind man once again. They put him under oath, saying, Give glory to God, which is in effect saying, Come clean or tell the truth. They say that they know this man is a sinner. They are certain that he's not from God. Their minds are set, valid reasoning, solid, solid proof means nothing to them. They have no interest in the factual details of the case, but are solely committed to justifying the verdict they have had from the start that this man cannot possibly be from God. Ironically, however, the man born blind does indeed give glory to God, but not by caving in into the pressure of the Pharisees or by denying his story. Instead, he glorifies God by fearlessly reiterating the truth that he knows and has experienced. He does not dive into the theoretical question pertaining to the possible sinfulness of Christ. Rather, he sticks to the facts. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Verse 25. The Pharisees were adamant that they know Jesus was a sinner. What this man knows, however, is that he was blind, but now he sees. The Pharisees are lost for words. They ask him again to recount the story of his miracle, but he quickly replies, I've already told you this. I love his response in verse 27. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? While the formerly blind man certainly knew that these men had no interest in actually becoming followers of Christ, what is both important and incredible here is that with this statement, he is counting himself among the disciples of Christ. Do you also want to become his disciples implies that he considers himself a follower of Christ. The Jews, on the other hand, are not too happy with this question. Listen to their response. And they reviled him. You are saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. They now ridicule this man for being a disciple of Jesus. They declare their allegiance to Moses. For the reader of John's gospel, we should be thinking, though, this, this statement is so ironic. It's almost comical. A few chapters earlier, Jesus stated so clearly, There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how then will you believe my words? John 5, 45-47. 
the irony is, is unreal here. The one whom they claim allegiance to is the very one who testified about Jesus. They express uncertainty as to the origin of this man, but they know that God spoke to Moses. Yes, God spoke to Moses, but what they fail to see is the one to whom they are so nonchalantly referring to is indeed the word of God himself. John tells us this in the very first verse. John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The Pharisees were right about one thing. They have no clue where Jesus came from. Readers of the gospel know, on the other hand, that Jesus is the one sent from above by the Father. John has repeatedly emphasized this. The statements Jesus made against the Jews last chapter are again relevant to their ignorance. This chapter, he made clear the reason they do not believe it because they are not of God. They cannot bear to hear his word. The Pharisees are so set against Jesus that they continue to slide further and further into the darkness. Throughout this chapter, they have illustrated the truth of John 3, 19 through 21, which reads, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. In verse 30, the man born blind responds, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do, not, you do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. At this point, it's simply ridiculous to the man that the Pharisees continue to reject not only his story, but Jesus himself. To the man who was born blind, their unbelief in the face of such evidence is almost more astonishing than his healing. His proposition is simple, and though it's not carefully nuanced, it's nonetheless accurate. The statement that God does not listen to the sinner, but hears the righteous, is supported and drawn from several places in Scripture, such as Isaiah, the Psalms, and Proverbs. But surely God is not prohibited by inadequacies of humanity and certainly can and has heard the sinner's cry. The man's point, though, is that Jesus' works testify to his being from God. The signs that Jesus performs witness to his divine origin and to his supernatural mission. This is what he says in John 10.25, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. As the conversation ends, it's clear that these words have fallen on deaf ears. Verse 34, the Pharisees resort to, to insulting the man, for they don't even want to respond logically. Their hypocrisy and their prejudice is only further revealed. Don Carson adds this, The Pharisees are so outraged by what they perceive as ignorant insolence, and so convinced are they that Jesus is at best a charlatan, at worst a dangerous sinner, that they do not remember the ancient promises that one of the signs of the dawning of the messianic age is the restoration of sight to the blind. Carson is correct, for in the book of Isaiah, in a passage directly about the Messiah, we read, I am Yahweh. I have called you the Messiah in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant 
for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisons, those who sit in darkness. Finally, the narrative begins to wrap up as we enter into the third and last section of the story, verses 35 to 41. After the formerly blind man has been cast out, Jesus tracks him down, just as he sought out the invalid from chapter 5. This time, however, the conversation goes quite differently. Jesus asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man responds, who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Revealing himself, Jesus replies, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Listen to the man's response. It's, it's amazing. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. In this moment, he sees Jesus not only with his newly opened physical eyes, but he clearly sees him with his spiritual eyes. This scene is the climax of the, the progression of faith which has been ongoing in this chapter. He's steadily grown in his understanding of who Jesus is. Back in verse 11, he was just a man. In verse 17, he sees him as a prophet. But verse 33, he's acknowledged that Jesus is from God, but now he has confessed Christ as the Son of Man, as Lord, and has fallen before him in worship. His spiritual eyes have been opened, and he sees that Jesus is the one object of a right faith and accordingly puts his trust in him. Edward Klink comments, Jesus says, I am. The disciple must respond with, I believe. And as the narrator reveals, true confession finds expression in only one response, worship. John makes it very clear by this verse that true faith not only believes, it acts. In this verse, we see that after the man had had his eyes opened to trust in Jesus, his response was falling down in praise before the one who had saved him. So it must be for us. If your mental assent to the truth of the gospel does not lead to a life of worship, you are still in the darkness. Maybe you verbally affirm the truths of Christianity. You've attended church for years. You remember some decision made years ago at a camp or at a service. But if you are not actively trusting, obeying, and worshiping Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, you are still blind. I love John Piper's definition of worship. He says, Worship is seeing, savoring, and showing the supreme beauty and worth of the triune God. I'll read that again. Worship is seeing, savoring, and showing the supreme beauty of the tr and worth of the triune God. Christ is supremely glorious. He's absolutely beautiful. He's completely sovereign and supreme. Truly seeing Christ is better than watching the most beautiful sunset in history. His splendor is greater than anything imaginable. Friends, all of creation is but a mere shadow of the glory of God revealed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is everything. Seeing him is everything. The only right response to having your spiritual eyes opened is falling on your face in worship before the glorious Savior. If you claim to be a Christian, is this your natural response? 
Each day, do you see, savor, and show the supreme beauty and worth of our God? The way that you may be assured that you are not blind, convinced that you are in the light, is if you are currently trusting in Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins. Are you actively believing on the Lord, living a life of devotion to him? Are you abiding in his word, living with his people, obeying his commands? If so, praise Jesus for giving you sight. In verse 39, the conversation shifts, and Jesus is no longer talking to the man whom he has healed, but he's talking to a group of Pharisees. He declares, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Now, you may be thinking, well, doesn't this contradict what John has said earlier about Jesus not coming into the world to to condemn it, but to save it? Though the primary purpose of Christ entering into the world was to save, not to judge, because of who he is, the coming of Jesus necessarily invokes judgment. When the light appears, it reveals those who are spiritually blind and thus judges them. Judgment was not the chief end of Christ's first coming, but it was an inevitable consequence. His mission to save unavoidably entails the condemnation of others, and in this derivative sense, Christ indeed came for judgment. As the light of the world, Jesus gives sight to those who believe and blinds those who remain in unbelief. Again, this is our truth statement. This is the main point today. Those who receive sight are those who, like the blind man in this story, admit that they are blind and unable to come to faith in Christ apart from him giving them sight. Those who refuse to acknowledge their spiritual blindness, claiming to have sight, only plunge deeper into darkness as their hearts are hardened against the king of glory and their eyes remain shut. The fact that the Pharisees had to ask in verse 20, is he talking about us, is proof that they were indeed blind. They perfectly embodied the condemnation about which Jesus had been speaking. The foundation of spiritual blindness is sin, and with his response in verse 41, Jesus dives into the root of the issue. If you were blind, he says, you would have no guilt, but now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Verse 41. Because of their sin and their unbelief, the Pharisees were unable to see how truly blind they were. Because they claimed to see, they became more and more blind. So, Do you have blindness or do you have sight? Do you have blindness or do you have sight? That is the question this passage asks of us. From the very beginning of John's gospel, he has depicted the utter inability of darkness to recognize the light. Not only can darkness not see the light, it cannot see itself for what it truly is. Those who remain in the darkness are under the illusion that they can manage without Jesus as the light of the world. On the contrary, Jesus makes it clear that it is only those who are blind who can receive sight from the sun. Every single person, like the blind man in this story, is blind from birth. I think that's one of the reasons that this detail is included and that it's crazy. Oh, this man was blind from birth. All of us are blind from birth. We must first declare our sinfulness and blindness if we would want to receive sight. 
This story has shown us what sight and blindness look like. This event sets forth Jesus as the light of the world, and it also shows us what happens when that light shines. John 9 displays the fact that the light of the world has come to reveal darkness and uncover the sin of unbelief and to provide sight to those who believe. It shows us that the light comes both to judge and to give life. In this story, the healing of the man's physical sight functions merely as a precursor to the true miracle, the granting of spiritual sight to a man who was a slave to sin. As we saw the blind man progress in his faith throughout the story, so we are offered a model of faith and conversion. Will we grow to understand our blindness, our sin, our unbelief, and put our trust in the Son of Man? Or will we remain like the Pharisees in this story, captive to darkness, persistent in unbelief? Like the man who was born blind, will we stand boldly against the lies of unbelief modeled by the Pharisees and fall before Jesus in worship? Or like the invalid from chapter 5, if you remember his response, will we remain a slave to sin, focused on ourselves, trapped in the dark? The message of this chapter, again, is that as the light of the world, Jesus gives sight to those who believe and blinds those who remain in unbelief. The man who was born blind in this story acts as a perfect example of one who fulfills the very purpose for which John wrote this book. You've probably heard us repeat this several times, um, a verse from John chapter 20, which says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But these, everything in this book is written so that you might believe, so you might trust, so you might worship Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the one sent from God to give life. And by doing so, you might have life in his name. For those of us who are Christians, having acknowledged our blindness and cried out to Christ for sight, let us rejoice. Greater than the miracle of restoring sight to the blind man is the miracle of God by his Spirit granting sight and life to blind and dead sinners like you and me. If you have acknowledged your sin and unbelief before Jesus Christ, then you are free from sin. You are given new life in the light. Like the man who was blind, we can, we can exclaim, the one thing I know is that though I was blind, now I see. Though I was blind, now I see. I love these words from John Newton, who near the end of his life said, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. I am blind. Christ gives me sight. I am in darkness. Christ gives me light. Brothers and sisters, praise God. For this miracle. If you have joined us today and you're not a Christian, that is, you have not yet acknowledged your blindness and given your trust and worship to Christ, first let me say welcome. We're so glad that you're here. But then let me ask you this. What is getting in the way of seeing the truth that is right in front of you? Is it your assumptions, your prejudices, the blindness of unbelief? How would you know? What could you do to find out Here's some great suggestions from Portland pastor Michael Lawrence. 
you could try considering Jesus' claims from the perspective of belief rather than unbelief. You could also spend time with God's people in the church and in God's word where you could expect to see his claims validated. But more than anything else, perhaps you should pray to God and ask him to give you spiritual eyes to see the spiritual truth. We want to walk alongside you as you explore the claims of Jesus, if this includes you. And, and today, we have people, we have staff members, we have prayer team out in the back, uh, myself, who, who would love to talk and pray with you about any of these things. This passage today has shown us that there is only one way to gain sight. That is through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other cure. There is no other So friends, I invite you, I urge you to consider what is at stake here. Do you have blindness or do you have sight? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? These are not merely rhetorical questions, just ponder them for a few seconds and forget about them. These are questions of life and death. The blind man from our text likely woke up expecting just another day of begging for food and money, living life blind, until unexpectedly, out of nowhere, he received the gift sight. So it could be with you. Today, you may be free from darkness and blindness and welcome into the light. In John 8, 24, Jesus said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. These words are bold and they're true, but the good news is this. Whoever hears the word of God and believes in Jesus Christ will have eternal life. They will not face God's just and righteous judgment, but instead will pass from death to life, from blindness to sight. Friends, the the sovereign delight and pleasure of God Almighty, what brings him glory through his son Jesus Christ, is to grant sight to the blind, to give light to those who are in darkness. Does this include you? Does this include you? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your awe-inspiring, worship-provoking word. Help us to respond rightly to this text. For those of us who already believe, we thank you for the spiritual sight we have been given through Christ. Would you strengthen us to abide in your word? Would you continue to conform us to the likeness of your son as we continue to walk in the light? Help us worship you each day, seeing, savoring, and showing your supreme glory. For those here who may not already believe, we ask that your spirit would awaken true belief in their hearts, regenerating and transforming them. Would you make them painfully aware of their sin and their blindness and plant in them a desire for true faith? Thank you, gracious Father, for Jesus Christ, light of the world. Amen.